Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Simon Anthony and Torty Talks. Alice Through the Looking Glass, Chapter One. Looking Glass House. One thing was certain that the white kitten had nothing to do with it. It was the black kitten's fault entirely. For the white kitten had been having its face washed by the old cat for the last quarter of an hour, and bearing it pretty well, considering, so you see that it couldn't have had any hand in the mischief. The way Dinah washed her children's faces was this. First she held the poor thing down by its ear with one paw, and then with the other paw she rubbed its face all over the wrong way, beginning at the nose, and just now, as I said, she was hard at work on the white kitten, which was lying quite still and trying to purr, no doubt feeling that it was all meant for its good. But the black kitten had been finished with earlier in the afternoon, and so, while Alice was sitting curled up in a corner of the great armchair, half talking to herself and half asleep, the kitten had been having a grand game of romps with a ball of worsted Alice had been trying to wind up, and had been rolling it up and down until it had all come undone again. And there it was, spread over the hearthrug, all knots and tangles, with a kitten running after its own tail in the middle. "'Oh, you wicked little thing!' cried Alice, catching up the kitten and giving it a little kiss to make it understand that it was in disgrace. "'Really, Dinah ought to have taught you better manners. You ought, Dinah, you know you ought!' She added, looking reproachfully at the old cat, and speaking in as cross a voice as she could manage, and... Then she scrambled back into the armchair, taking the kitten and the worsted with her, and began winding up the ball again. But she didn't get on very fast. She was talking all the time, sometimes to the kitten and sometimes to herself. Kitty sat very demurely on her knee, pretending to watch the progress of the winding, and now and then putting out one paw and gently touching the ball, as if it would be glad to help if it might. "'Do you know what tomorrow is, Kitty?' Alice began. "'You'd have guessed if you'd been up in the window with me, "'only Dinah was making you tidy, so I couldn't. "'I was watching the boys getting in sticks for the bonfire, "'and it wants plenty of sticks, Kitty. "'Only it got so cold, and it snowed so they had to leave off. "'Never mind. Kitty, we'll go and see the bonfire tomorrow.' Here Alice wound two or three turns of the worsted around the kitten's neck, just to see how it would look. This led to a scramble, in which the ball rolled down upon the floor, and yards and yards of it got unwound again. "'Do you know I was so angry, Kitty?' Alice went on, as soon as they were comfortably settled again. "'When I saw all the mischief you had been doing, I was very nearly opening the window and putting you out into the snow. "'And you'd have deserved it, you little mischievous darling. "'What have you got to say for yourself? "'Now don't interrupt me,' she went on, holding up one finger. "'I'm going to tell you all your faults. "'Number one. "'You squeaked twice while Dinah was washing your face this morning.' "'Now you can't deny it, Kitty, I heard you. "'What's that you say?' pretending the kitten was speaking. "'A paw went into your eye. "'Well, that's your fault for keeping your eyes open. "'If you shut them right tight up, that wouldn't have happened. "'Now don't make any more excuses, but listen. "'Number two, you pulled Snowdrop away by the tail "'just as I had put down the saucer of milk before her.' "'What? You were thirsty, were you? "'Well, how do you know she wasn't thirsty, too?' 
Now for number three. You unwound every bit of the worsted while I wasn't looking. That's three faults, Kitty, and you've not been punished for any of them yet. You know I'm saving up all your punishments for Wednesday week. Suppose they have saved up all my punishments, she went on, talking more to herself than the kitten. What would they do in the end of the year? I should be sent to prison, I suppose, when the day came. Oh, let me see. Suppose each punishment was to be going without a dinner. Then, when the miserable day came, I should have to go without fifty dinners at once. Well, I shouldn't mind that much. I'd far rather go without them than eat them. Do you hear the snow against the window panes, Kitty? How nice and soft it sounds, just as if someone was kissing the window all over outside. I wonder if the snow loves the trees and fields that it kisses them so gently. And then it covers them up snug, you know, with a white quilt, and perhaps it says, Go to sleep, darlings, till the summer comes again. And when they wake up in the summer, Kitty, they dress themselves all up in green and dance about wherever the wind blows. Oh, that's very pretty, cried Alice, dropping the ball of worsted to clap her hands. And I do so wish it was true. I'm sure the woods look sleepy in the autumn when the leaves are getting brown. Kitty, can you play chess? Now, don't smile, my dear. I'm asking it seriously. Because when you were playing just now, you watched just as if you understood it. And when I said check, you purred. Well, it was a nice little check, Kitty. And I really might have won if I hadn't been for that nasty night that came wriggling down among my pieces. Kitty, dear, let's pretend. And here I wish I could tell you half the things Alice used to say, beginning with her favourite phrase, let's pretend. She had quite a long argument with her sister only the day before, all because Alice had begun with, let's pretend we're kings and queens, and her sister, who liked being very exact, had argued that they couldn't because there were only two of them, and Alice had been reduced at last to say, well, you can be one of them and I'll be all the rest. And once she had really frightened her old nurse by shouting suddenly in her ear, Nurse, do let's pretend that I'm a hungry hyena and you're a bone. But this is taking us away from Alice's speech to the kitten. Let's pretend that you're the Red Queen, Kitty. Do you know, I think if you sat up and folded your arms, you'd look exactly like her. Now do try this, dear. And Alice got the Red Queen off the table and set it up before the kitten as a model for it to imitate. However, the thing didn't succeed, principally, Alice said, because the kitten wouldn't fold its arms properly. So to punish it, she held it up to the looking-glass, and that it might see how sulky it was. And if you're not good directly, she added, I'll put you through into looking-glass house. How do you like that? Now, if you'll only attend, Kitty, and not talk so much, I'll tell you all my ideas about Looking Glass House. First, there's a room you can see through the glass. That's just the same as our drawing room, only the things go the other way. I can see all of it when I get on my chair, all but the bit behind the fireplace. Oh, I do wish I could see that bit. I want so much to know whether they've a fire in the winter. You never can tell unless your fire smokes. And then smoke comes up into that room too. But there may be only pretense just to make it look as if they had a fire. Well then, the, the books are something like our books. 
Only the words go the wrong way. I know that because I held up one of our books to the glass, and then they hold up one in the other room. How would you like to live in Looking Glass House, Kitty? I wonder if they'd give you milk in there. Perhaps Looking Glass milk isn't good to drink, but... Oh, Kitty, now we come to the passage. You can just see a little peep of the passage in Looking Glass House if you leave the door of our drawing room wide open. And it's very like our passage, as far as you can see, only you know it may be quite different on beyond. Oh, Kitty, how nice it would be if we could only get through into Looking Glass House. I'm sure it's got, oh, such beautiful things in it. Let's pretend there's a way of getting through into it somehow, Kitty. Let's pretend the glass has gone all soft like gauze so we can get through. Why, it's turning into a sort of mist now, I declare. It'll be easy enough to get through. She was up on the chimney-piece while she said this, though she hardly knew how she got there. And certainly the glass was beginning to melt away, just like a bright silvery mist. In another moment, Alice was through the glass and had jumped lightly down into the looking-glass room. The very first thing she did was to look whether there was a fire in the fireplace, and she was quite pleased to find that there was a real one, blazing away as brightly as the one she'd left behind. So I shall be as warm here as I was in the old room, thought Alice. Warmer, in fact, because there'll be no one here to scold me away from the fire. Oh, what fun it'll be when they see me through the glass in here and can't get at me. Then she began looking about and noticed that what could be seen from the old room was quite common and uninteresting, but that all the rest was as different as possible. For instance, the pictures on the wall next to the fire seemed to all be alive, and the very clock on the chimney-piece, you know you can only see the back of it from the looking-glass, had got the face of a little old man, and grinned at her. They don't keep this room so tidy as the other, Alice thought to herself as she noticed several of the chessmen down on the hearth among the cinders. But in another moment, with a little hoo of surprise, she was down on her hands and knees watching them. The chessmen were walking about, two and two. Here are the Red King and the Red Queen, Alice said in a whisper for fear of frightening them. And there are the White King and the White Queen sitting at the edge of the shovel. And here are two castles walking arm in arm. I don't think they can hear me, she went on, as she put her head closer to them. I'm nearly sure they can't see me. I feel somehow as if I were invisible. Here something began squeaking on the table behind Alice, and made her turn her head just in time to see one of the white pawns roll over and begin kicking. She watched it with great curiosity to see what would happen next. "'It's the voice of my child!' the White Queen cried out as she rushed past the king so violently that she knocked him over among the cinders. "'My precious lily, my imperial kitten!' and she began scrambling wildly up the side of the fender. "'Imperial fiddlestick!' said the king, rubbing his nose, which had been hurt by the fall. He had a right to be a little annoyed with the queen, for he was covered with ashes from head to foot. Alice was very anxious to be of use, and, as the poor little Lily was nearly screaming herself into a fit, she hastily picked up the queen and set her on the table by the side of the noisy little daughter. 
The queen gasped and sat down. The rapid journey through the air had quite taken away her breath, and for a minute or two she could do nothing but hug the little lily in silence. As soon as she had recovered her breath a little, she called out to the white king, who was sitting sulkily among the ashes, Mind the volcano! What volcano? said the king, looking up anxiously into the fire, as if he thought that it was most likely place to find one. Blew me up! did the queen, who was still a little out of breath. Mind you come up the regular way, don't get blown up! Alice watched the white king as he slowly struggled up from bar to bar, till at last she said, Why, you'll be hours and hours getting to the table at that rate. I'd far better help you, hadn't I? The king took no notice of the question. It was quite clear that he could neither hear nor see her. So Alice picked him up very gently and lifted him across more slowly than she'd lifted the queen, that she mightn't take his breath away. But before she put him on the table, she thought she might as well dust him a little. He was so covered with ashes. She said afterwards that she had never seen in all her life such a face as the king made when he found himself held in the air by an invisible hand and being dusted. He was far too much astonished to cry out, but his eyes and his mouth went on getting larger and larger and rounder and rounder till her hand shook so with laughing that she nearly let him drop upon the floor. Oh, please don't make such faces, my dear, she cried out, quite forgetting the king couldn't hear her. You make me laugh so that I could hardly hold you. And don't keep your mouth so wide open. All the ashes will get in. And there, now, I think you're tidy enough, she added, as she smoothed his hair and set him upon the table near the queen. The king immediately fell flat on his back and lay perfectly still, and Alice was a little alarmed at what she had done, and went around the room to see if she could find any water to throw over him. However, she could find nothing but a bottle of ink, and when she got back with it, she found he had recovered, and he and the Queen were talking together in a frightened whisper, so low that Alice could hardly hear what they said. The King was saying, I assure you, my dear, I turned gold to the very ends of my whiskers, to which the Queen replied, you haven't got any whiskers. The horror of that moment, the king went on, I shall never forget. You will, though, the queen said, if you don't make a memorandum of it. Alice looked on with great interest as the king took an enormous memorandum book out of his pocket and began writing. A sudden thought struck her, and she took hold of the end of the pencil, which came some way over his shoulder, and began writing for him. The poor king looked puzzled and unhappy, and struggled with the pencil for some time without saying anything. But Alice was too strong for him, and at last he panted, But my dear, I really must get a thinner pencil. I can't manage this one a bit. It writes all manner of things that I don't intend. What manner of things? said the queen, looking over the book, in which Alice had put, The white knight is sliding down the poker. He balances very badly. That's not a memorandum of your feelings. There was a book lying near Alice on the table, and while she sat watching the White King, for she was still a little anxious about him, and had the ink all ready to throw over him in case he fainted again, she turned over the leaves to find some part that she could read. For it's all in some language I don't know, she said to herself. It was like this. Yuck-a-bow, yuck-a-bow. 
She puzzled over this for some time, but at last a bright thought struck her. Why, it's a looking-glass book, of course. And if I hold up to a glass, the words will go all the right way again. This was the poem that Alice read. "'Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogroves, and the momraths outgrabe. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird, and shun the frumious bandersnatch. Long time the maxim foe he sought, so rested he by the tum-tum tree, and stood a while in thought. And as in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock, with eyes of flame, came whiffling through the curdly wood, and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through the vorpal blade went snicker-snack. It left it dead, and with its head he went galumphing back. And hast thou slain the jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy. O oh, frabjous day, kaloo He chortled in his joy. T'was brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the burrogroves, and the momraths outgrabe. It seems very pretty, she said when she finished it, but it is rather hard to understand. You see, she didn't like to confess even to herself that she couldn't make it out at all. Somehow it seems to fill my head with ideas, but I don't exactly know what they are. However, somebody killed something, that's clear at any rate. But, oh, thought Alice, suddenly jumping up, if I don't make haste, I shall have to go back through the looking-glass before I've seen what the rest of the house is like. Let's have a look at the garden first. She was out of the room in a moment and ran downstairs, or at least it wasn't exactly running, but a new invention of hers for getting downstairs quickly and easily, as Alice said to herself. She just kept the tips of her fingers on the handrail and floated gently down without even touching the stairs with her feet. Then she floated on through the hall and would have gone straight out of the door in the same way if she hadn't caught hold of the doorpost. She was getting a little giddy with so much floating in the air, and was rather glad to find herself walking again in the natural way. Of Frogs and Techno Dads Two of the three kids I'm looking after today are playing happily as I type. My first child is playing with a borrowed one in the cat's lavatory, or sand pit as we used to call it. I'm sitting in the garden with thousands of baby frogs. These are what my second child is inadvertently stamping on. This is a Tuesday morning. The father of the one who's not ours is working down south where the real jobs are. What am I doing here? Well, it's mostly my choice, but I think I jumped off the edge of the employment cliff before I fell. A long time ago, I had a real job, a real life, a job for life. The problem with a job that lasts that long is that interest in it runs out before life does, in my case, long before. That job was at the BBC, in the Telrec department. In those good old days, television was recorded on machines four times the size of an upright piano, 
on tapes so heavy that it was only possible to carry four at once before damaging your back. That was 20 years or more ago. Uh, note from Ed. I wrote this 20 years ago, so that was 40 years or more ago. Today, that same technical job can be done in the palm of one hand and still leave space left for a camera, television, even a high-fidelity stereo sound recorder. However, there is not space enough for the engineering bod who carted round, loaded up, cleaned and optimised the playback of the old massive tapes. I saw this coming and did something about it. I left. By the time I left television, I was one of those people who took the adverts out of commercial British programmes and stuck the ends together again so that our lads overseas could have some home telly to watch without the temptation of unavailable chocolate bars or whatever. Quite a rewarding job, though dull. I really hate adverts. To make the trip into the unknown and therefore more interesting outside world a bit less stressful, I did it in several stages. The first was to change the title and my place of my work. Moving away from London did not have to mean leaving TV immediately. I found freelance work and did that until my new employers caught on that they didn't need humans to run their gadgets either. Computers could do the irksome stuff, so they sacked the irks. That was almost 10 years ago. Brackets 30. So what do I do now? I can't do, so I teach. Computing. I had to stop typing there as my son with frog-encrusted feet wants a cuddle. He needs his nappy changing too, but it's strangely unaware of that. The forces which push me out of TV also allow me to write these indelicate problems with one hand in mid-cuddle in the garden. It is the electronic revolution which has done all this and has affected almost all areas of my life. It has caused me problems and set me many a challenge, and I think I'm winning. I'm certainly enjoying life more now than ever before, but the price is not only one of a massively reduced income, but also and mainly one of reduced or removed feelings of security. It was a major leap of faith for me to manage to run out of the rat race's major rut. It was more than a shock to find that there is another small race to be run outside of it. As usual, running away gets you nowhere, and the forces pushing me have not abated even though I've escaped their initial direct attack. If anything, they have increased. I moved into computers when Telly died. At the same time, it was still possible to kid other people you knew all about computers. That has always been impossible, but the unbridged chasm between the attainable and unattainable is widening by the second. And again, I saw that coming, so I've given up again. As I write, I'm being even further de-skilled. The continuing insurmountability of the job problem can get me down, but I know there is a way out of it. All I have to do is to try hard enough not to worry. Everyone is in the same boat. The number of men pushing their kids to playgroup proves that. From time to time, we even talk to each other. A shared new existence which makes we techno-dads beam with pleasure, when we aren't wondering how to pay the bills, that is. It is oddly difficult to write while a child in your care is screaming for attention. I know he is fine. I know he can manage without my 100% attention. I know he is safe. He's sitting at my feet but thinking becomes close to impossible while his screams continue. How is a lad supposed to work like this? Ah, I know. Wait till mummy comes home. It can be lonely being a techno dad.
To cheer myself up, I, of course, use my computer. The internet, to be exact. No silly games for me. For example, 100 million hits were registered on NASA's Mars Pathfinder internet website on the day of the recent probe's landing 20 years ago. A web hit is when one computer asks for data from the one holding the web page. It does not equate to a number of people at all. People are another matter entirely. By day four, after the landing, the figure quoted by the massed media was still 100 million, probably because someone tweaked the planet would run out of humans if the total rose that fast every day. What is the relevance of this, you ask? Well, being one of that apparent vast number, I wanted to share my delight and wonder at it all with another human. All I can find, though, are computers. Even computers run by other humans seem to leave their operators unmoved, while I am in paroxysm of delight. They turn off. Why? How? It is a bad sign that my partner and soulmate also remains steadfastly irritated by it all. She is no Luddite. She blames Star Trek for her lack of interest. Not the 60s sitcom, but the thought-provoking version of the 90s. These programmes are made so well that belief in them has outmanoeuvred the wonder of reality. Seen that, done that, at least at third hand via DS9. That accounts for some, yet those 100 million must be out there somewhere. Where are the other Marsophilic technodads? It worries me that I can't get out of this by teaching. If so many people can use computers well enough to see what Mars looked like ten minutes ago, and all that without much help from experts, then who is left for me to teach? The kids in the sandpit, perhaps? But I will have to scrape the cat poo off them first. That'll be nice. Other people's pets. Animals and I do not mix well. I tend to be somewhat caustic about them on occasion, but for years I have had to live with both the good and the not-so-good, and I think I've coped quite well. This is something for me to be proud of. If ever again I come out with one of my less than flattering pet-directed remarks and someone says, ''Ah, you can't really mean that. How can you say something like that if you haven't even got a pet yourself?'' I have a reply. Forever in my memory there dwells a pet, and proof I can live through owning it. Being my pet can't be much fun for the animal either, but tough luck, I come first. Instances of our mutual incompatibility can come in very useful as arguments in my defence. When supporting my position against the questioning of one of this world's more willing pet owners, I now have an answer. If they should berate me for my lack of pink spectacles when observing the habits of their own particular ineffective house slave, I can go at them in a big way, knowing I am right. But this wasn't always the case. Once, on a beach, a dog got me. I was lost for words, speechless with anger. How was it possible for my world to be invaded with such disregard for my feelings? My anger flamed up, but had nowhere to go but burn within me. In those days, before I had come across well-trained pets, I thought this was a natural and unavoidable occurrence. If the same should happen today, things would be different. 
Now I have also learned that it is not the action of a heel to use natural superiority when got at in the privacy of your own holiday. I will rightly point out that I don't consider it acceptable practice to allow a small dog freedom to wander up to a perfect stranger, let alone stand by and watch it short out a very personal stereo with a measured amount of aromatic gland secretion, especially if it's delivered by urine. After this gentle repost, I can feel quite free to throw a stone at the animal, missing deliberately, and shout and stamp about wildly by way of explaining any apparent overreaction. If that doesn't result in an abject apology coupled with a repair fee, which I would name, then the next stone would hit the true transgressor, the pet owner. It is not the animal, but the owner who is at fault. How could it be otherwise? Only we humans have a brain worth communicating with, and then only sometimes. It is a waste of time and energy trying to explain the design of a silk purse to a listener equipped only with the sow's ear. Looking at the situation from a more objective standpoint, I note that the comforts obtained from an animal are not those of the intellect. I should not then attribute any failings of intellect to the beast, but to myself. The canals are to be found at my end of the telescope. Nor should I demean the emotional makeup of others whose sole support comes from the unquestioning love of a dumber-than-usual animal. Just because I can cope without the pet's attentions is not to say the same is true of those sad unfortunates. Just that it could be. But that is their problem. Mine is their attitude rather than the animal in person. That was one in the series of Torty Talks from Simon Anthony, acting at torty.org.uk.